Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and um, today we're going to be speaking with Susie Orbach. Um, Susie Orbach is uh, maybe a name familiar to many. Um, She is one of the few um, English-speaking psychoanalytic public intellectuals, and um, in fact, uh, she inspired um, for uh, for me, for your host, her involvement with the project at New Books in Psychoanalysis, uh, the importance of bringing psychoanalytic ideas out of the consulting room and the clinic and um, to a broader audience. So it's a real pleasure to be able to um, interview her today. Um, for those of you who don't know who Susie Orbach is, she's a psychoanalyst, and um, you may have heard of a book published in 1978 called Fat is a Feminist Issue, um, which uh, for those uh, who haven't read it, um, it is a consciousness raiser, um, even now. Um, she, in the book, she brings together the problems of um, women women have with their relationship uh, to their to our bodies, and links this to sort of public consciousness about femininity, um, and looking at what does it mean that um, people eat when they're not hungry, um, how this has a psychoanalytic link um, to early feeding. Um, and uh, it was really quite a, a groundbreaker to begin to think of uh, women's use of um, our bodies and um, public uh, discourse about femininity and how they actually impact um, when we are hungry or when are we aware of our hunger. Can women want anything? This seems to be a, a, a theme here um, at New Books in Psychoanalysis. Furthermore, um, this month in New Books and Psychoanalysis, August, the month where the analyst takes a holiday, we're working extra hard and <laughs> we'll, are conducting three interviews. Um, forthcoming is Stephen Poser um, in uh, his book, um, The Misfits, about Marilyn Monroe's relationship with her psychoanalyst, um, the eminent uh, Ralph Greenson. And then we'll be speaking later um, in the month with Muriel Dimon, um, and uh, about her publication of a collection of writings from a reading group that she facilitated called Psychoanalytic Stories uh, with Culture in Mind, or is it with Culture in Mind, Psychoanalytic Stories? Um, Anyway, but Susie Warbach is with us today um, to speak about her most recent publication, um, published in the U.S. by Picador in 2009. Um, The book we're going to talk with her about is called Plain and Simply, Bodies. And... um, This book is of great interest, I think, to psychoanalysts who are seeing body problems on the couch. Um, And her take is very unique, and it's beyond uh, the usual thinking of um, we're seeing a hysterical symptom in the body that the body is speaking to us. But rather um, than looking at uh, anorexia as an expression of uh, an unbidden uh, or or, uh, not permissible hunger, she suggests that we've lost our bodies, that we have unstable bodies, that we're born into bodily instability at this point in the culture, that women in the West are giving birth to children, and these women um, become mothers, and their bodies are already unstable. They're already policing their hungers, policing their appetites, attempting to change how they look, attempting to um, alter their bodies, and that their offspring um, have picked up this message at the get-go, at the breast, as it were and that we're seeing patients um, and alisans who um, are, the term that comes to my mind is pre-bodied. 
Anyway, without further ado, we'd really like to welcome um, Susie Orbach uh, here to New Books in Psychoanalysis and uh, look forward to hearing her thoughts about um, the body Think and hear more of her thinking and uh, her thoughts about her writing. Hi, uh, we'd like to welcome Susie Orbach. Are you there on the other line? Yes, hello. Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. We're um, really pleased to have you with us um, today for our 50-minute hour um, and uh, of uh, discussing uh, new books um, by psychoanalytic um, thinkers and clinicians, of which you are one. Um, so we're very pleased to have you here. I have a lot of uh, questions and ideas um, that were prompted by reading Fat as a Feminist Issue over 30 years ago and more recently reading um, your publication, um, Bodies, um, which uh, got me thinking about um, the role of psychoanalysis um, mm-hmm. in the political sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, because you certainly are a, a politically engaged, I would say, psychoanalyst. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. could you tell us, first of all, what prompted you to write this book, and then we can go on from there? I think there were several different reasons that I wrote Bodies. Um, one, at the level of the social, as opposed to the purely psychoanalytic, even though I had difficulty dividing those, which we can discuss in a moment, yeah. was... Uh, the experience of being around a lot of young people, my children included, and recognizing that what I wrote about in fact of the feminist issue 35 years ago um, was now, what I wrote about as an area of difficulty would now be considered completely a normal, even a sort of super normal, okay relationship to food and to the body. That the behaviors that young people were engaged in and had been engaged in since they'd been very young were so troubled and disturbed in relation to eating in their body that that itself had become normalized. And I wanted to draw attention to that and raise a whole set of questions about how it is that we've created a generation of youngsters, and of course we're doing it uh, all the time, who are frightened of their appetites, uh, unclear about body boundaries, don't know where to begin and end, and don't really know the position of their bodies, if you like, in the world and, and of their end of their appetite. So that was one kind of reason. Mm-hmm. The second was, and I, this I suppose I would call the more psychoanalytic, is that I was seeing an increasing number of people in therapy who came for all sorts of reasons, bereavement, uh, change of life situation, um, confusions, conflicts, losses, all the normal things that we're used to people coming to therapy about. Mm-hmm. And that inevitably people would say something en passant about their body without thinking about body distress, without thinking that there was anything remarkable about it or anything to be thought about there or any, any hope to be had, which represented a real shift in my clinical practice where people either came in with eating problems or body problems or they came in with kind of general problems, if you like. Now it was as though anybody with a general problem took it for granted that they had difficulties with their bodies. Yeah. So that was one... that sort of alerted me to something changing. And then it began to seem to me that 
one needed to interrogate a very conventional view that we've had uh, that, the, that the body creates the mind. I mean, that the mind creates the body and that all bodily symptoms are an expression of conflict and distress in the mind. And that perhaps we needed to focus on the body and look at its own psychological origins and give it a status that was really rather different than just being a dustbin to the activities of the mind. I think that that's um, one of your most um, interesting and challenging arguments um, in the sort of psychoanalytic mm -hmm. sphere, that it's uh, not... Um, I have a quote uh, that you write, the mind-body link is being transformed. Um, orthodox psychoanalytic theory about the mind's ability to commandeer the body has fallen short. Um, mm. And I wanted to ask, how, how so? How has, how has uh, the psychoanalytic sort of model of the mind, uh, like, for instance, hysteria, you know, is, is a, I think you're putting forth an argument for a post-hysterical uh, body at, at some level. Well, I think you, are, it, it, you could say it that way, or you could say that the whole body has become hystericized, <laughs> or you could say there's something we need to grapple with about body-to-body -body transmission, just as the whole of psychoanalysis in the last period has been very preoccupied with the transmissions of minds to minds, mm -hmm. and the kinds of minds that parental or mother figures are able to offer to infants, etc. It has been a really major focus of Beatrice Beebe's work, of the Steele's work, of the attachment literature. But in relation to the body, that hasn't happened. And so from my perspective, we really need to understand how we get minds, how, how we get bodies in the way, same kind of level of depth that we've understood how we get minds, how we get the bodies that we have, how fixed the bodies are, how plastic are the notions of body, how, what happens if you have a very disturbed or a borderline body, if you like, or a chaotic body, depends which terminology you want to use. Does that have an importance that we need to look at in terms of the adult's experience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of their own corporeality? It's interesting. And you can't simply do that right. by saying that this is a hysterical symptom because the mind is not at ease but, and therefore the body is carrying something. I think we need to look much more closely at even though this is a very problematic thing to do, what about the mind and its own psychic history? Not, not simply as a receiving plate or surface for conflicts of the mind. Mm -hmm. Well, you have, I mean, I think you, you put forth the argument that bodily destabilization creates destabilization in the mind, not necessarily um, always the reverse, which is a really new, I think, a very new yes. understanding. If, if and a very that. scary thought, really, because in England this week, we've just had the report out of the number of children in anorectic wards, six and seven-year-olds, mm. five, six and seven-year-olds, mm -hmm. so that we're now seeing very, very severe, severe corporeal or body disturbances early on. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes me fear for the impact of body instability on uh, uh, the capacity, if you like, to crash, to crash the mind and to crash something, which in a way was a bit more divided before. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it is a provocative thesis. I hope it isn't true, but it's something I'm thinking about a lot.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it is, I think it is very, it's very provocative, and it, it turns a certain psychoanalytic notions on, on their head. Um, I was thinking you, you have a concept of um, an internal body, I think, mm. um, and I was wondering if you could um, elucidate, talk more about what you mean by this idea of an internal body. Every time I try to talk about this, it, it, one begins to lose it. Let's, let's give it a I try. Think, <laughs> and no, I say that because I don't think this is a concept that's easy to get hold of. We're so used to, without interrogating, what we mean by an inner world or an inner mind, mm-hmm. that actually, if we were forced to articulate it, we're really quite stumbly about it. It's sort of like we get used to the concept and we all use it and we all approximate to something when we're talking mm-hmm. about our inner minds, mm-hmm. right, our inner world. And I, I, so I, I'm, I'm up against trying to describe something that we haven't agreed exists but is in a way akin to the elusiveness of the notion of an an, an inner self. So with the inner body, you you might have a sense of a chaotic, uncontrollable, uh, unruly, um, letting you down kind of physicality Mm -hmm. and body sense of self that is entirely contingent and reliant on external stimuli or stimuli that make you aware of your body's unreliability. Let's say that's on the on the difficult side. I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, I mean, I, other, it's, it's kind of like the unconscious, I mean, trying to, you know, discuss the unconscious and its existence. I mean, it's, it's something that's ineffable. And yet, I was thinking that in, in uh, the book, um, in Bodies, you describe um, working as a clinician, paying attention to your own body. And um, I was, which I think you give some, a couple of very powerful examples of the burning feeling that you felt mm-hmm. with one patient, et cetera. Of course, people have a hard time believing that, you know, <laughs> people not in our profession that that we we undergo um, experiences such as this. But it sounds yeah. like you really listen to not just um, the feeling states, but bodily feeling states. Well, I I probably do very um, consciously now, but I don't think I did, and I think this is why this new theory introduced itself to me or landed on me. Mm-hmm. is that I began to experience in sessions a, from time to time, a very profound sense of bodily sensations, which were not the kind of sensations I was accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And like any counter-transference, one looks particularly at the discordant tra- counter-transferences. The fact that these were bodily ones was intriguing to me and allowed me to think, well, what, what on earth is going on here? Is something being asked for, being transmitted here? Um, why, what, why, why on earth am I having these extremely strange feelings, mm. powerful physical feelings during certain bits of a session or with certain patients? So that would be one way to try to describe this ineffable ineffable thing. Mm-hmm. I think partly, and I don't know if this, again, <laughs> this helps, is that partly because I had been uh, noticing myself noticing bodily stuff for a long time now, I feel uh, my own body is quite well plotted in the sense that it doesn't feel 
chaotic and unreliable. It, you know, it feels its age. <laughs> it feels uh, its vibrancies or its fatigues or its desolations or its joys. So I have an internal image, if you like, and a physical, somatic sense of my own body's um, feelings and the kind of space I might take up in relation to another at a physical level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's been as a result of experiencing some really strange things in the countertransference where temporarily my body has been eclipsed by the body symptoms of another, or I don't know if we can call them their symptoms, but my response to their symptoms, or have felt a kind of invasion of, not that exactly a body snatcher, but mm-hmm. something akin to. Sure. A body taking up residence in my body. Sure, absolutely. The, uh, the. I'm thinking. Actually, you know, I'm thinking about. You have an incredible case, um, or actually, it's not a case. It's a tale of a man who um, wanted to, and eventually did have his um, his legs removed. That yeah. he felt compelled and needed to um, remove these these body parts, and you describe attempting to think having that desire, um, having that wish, and how hard it is. And yet, if he was in the consulting room, I wonder what would have happened. Would your legs have gone numb? Would your, you know, what, what the experience well, would Well, that's what's so interesting because I presume we would have found out something more. And if, if I could have communicated with the therapist who wrote that up, that case up, I would have loved, actually, if I could have communicated face-to-face. He was a VA um, psychiatrist or, mm-hmm. or psychologist, I would have loved to have known what his physical experience was because I'm sure there was multiple texture there to feel. Or if there wasn't, that itself would have been extremely interesting and intriguing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Given given the depth of this man's, um, I guess, conflict. Concept that he, wouldn't, he was not a complete body with legs. He was incomplete with legs. Right, but something would, was satisfied by the loss of the limbs. Um, yes. It's really, it's quite something, um, that that case. Um, and I was thinking also you, you have, a, I think, a critique, um, implicit, um, woven throughout the book, a, sort of a critique of um, postmodernism, of the idea of performativity. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, um, sort of out of maybe queer theory, um, the, the transformations of the self. And I think you... Um, uh, you say that sure we can we can change uh, our genders we can change you know sh- you know bo- sort of bodily shapes do things to our ears to our hair but yet the reification of thinness uh, remains sort of un uh, sort of not part of that that postmodern um, thinking that thinness uh, has a has a fixed place um, yeah it's very uncontested I think I've made two different critiques of postmodernism mm-hmm. which is I think at the level of the culture, it's very, very interesting mm-hmm. and as a, as a way to rethink some of the limitations of modernism mm-hmm. and to really revitalize that project uh, philosophically and theoretically, I find postmodernism refreshing. Where I have extraordinary difficulty with it is the translation of uh, whether it's trans or queer theory doesn't really matter what the anything goes mm-hmm. um, notion of 
and the sort of performative sense of this is how you become human is that you make yourself. Right. That doesn't ring very true for the therapist because <laughs> the therapist, the analyst, is actually dealing with the person who's tried all of the uh, paint-by-numbers personality and it hasn't worked right. because it doesn't fit. Right. It doesn't, it's not that it doesn't fit. It doesn't reach those places where you need to experience yourself as a human. Right. I think that um, it's a, there's an idea that one can choose and make choices. And, you know, Judith Butler, when she wrote um, you know, gender, um, gender Trouble, she, she was, I think, horrified by the reaction um, to how um, uh, notions of performativity and, and parity were, were seen as, as if one could buy it. One could buy something new and, mm-hmm. cre- and recreate oneself. But I think that as, as analysts, the unconscious is very powerful. Um, you know, we know we know this, and we know that the unconscious uh, that has nothing to do with choice, does it? Absolutely. And <laughs> if you have, if I think if there is, if we could use a sort of old-fashioned term, if the self can exist, or if the body can exist, right? If those, if there was a psychosomatic okayness, then choice becomes play, and that's lovely. Right. But for most of our work, what we listen to, what we engage with, the people that we meet, are very, very far from being able to play (laughs) because they feel in rigid patterns of um, dissatisfaction. And when they try on different identities, those different identities, whether they're at the level of the body or at the level of... um, the soul or however you want to think about it, can fail to be sustainable and therefore they just become defense structures Mm -hmm. and equally unsatisfactory. So I think we have to move away from those wonderfully lovely descriptions in postmodernism because our our clinical practice drives us to something else, which isn't a true self, I think that would be, or a true body, but but to... Associating parts of the self and the body that can be sustainable—that's what our job is. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And I—I I think that another. Um, I, I, I found the chapter. Which chapter is it? Um, just looking at it here. Bodies real and not so real. Yeah, that was. Mm-hmm. A, that was a very. Honestly, that chapter was horrifying and like made me physically a little ill. <laughs> it, was, mm-hmm. it was one of those that are hard to read when you begin to think about. Um, the ways in which and the, the, the length in which people are, are willing to go um, physically to, to change themselves. It made me both sad and, and sick at the same time, truly, like a, a nausea set in. Um, thinking about plastic surgery, thinking about stomach stapling, I was like, God, I felt so inside of um, of trouble of of the troubled body. Um, oh, I'm so, I mean, I'm sorry you felt that way, but I'm so pleased oh, you it's okay. That. <laughs> because I think what's really disturbs me at a, at a cultural level is that little girls now are growing up thinking, ah, labiaplasty. Right. In other words, transformation for them really is not, has not been problematized mm-hmm. because it's been happening since the photoshopping of their photos since their babies. Right. But they have, they have a really curious notion of what this 
thing called the body is. It's it's something that they. It isn't so much that they perform, but it is something that they need to make. Right. That's right. It's a product. It's a product. It's a form of production. Right. And uh, a production that you work on. That's right. Well, I was wondering, how, what's, what's, your, what's your thinking about, um, how, not so much how, but rather why has the body become vulnerable to being used as other than a place to, as you would say, to live from? Why the body? You know, I mean, well, uh, why, the, the, the turn, because, you, you know, you've, you have a, a critique of, of, you know, sort of capitalism and advertising and, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole system. It's really, it's good for this body stuff, you know, everything that's going on with the body is very good for, for commerce, right? Maybe it'll bring yeah, back the American economy. Yeah, I think it is economy. extremely good for commerce. It's extremely good. It's very, very profitable. You Absolutely. can really grow your profits phenomenally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as the, as the stock market in the West collapses. Again and uh, again, yeah. There are huge, huge profits to be made by selling body uh, hatred and its supposed solutions to the new economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where all our companies are moving. That's where the transnational corporations are moving. Mm-hmm. But I think what one supposition I've tried to make is that well, two suppositions, I suppose. One is that we no longer use our bodies in production. Mm-hmm. So we did have a relationship to the body, unless you were from a particularly small social class. Uh, so that the body did have a function that was part of life. And that really has disappeared for most people in the West. Mm-hmm. I mean, manual work. Okay, in England we have a lot of... Eastern European builders, but it's not really an occupation of the English anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one idea. But the other idea is that if you have within neoliberalism, in this particular phase of capitalism, if you have the individual as a site of consumption, then the individual body becomes a series of surfaces that can become uh, really exquisite uh, areas for transformation, for selling to, for changing, for perfecting. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have another understanding of why it should be so malleable, but th- th- those are the two that I can offer. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really interesting to think because you know, capitalism can set its sights on... Uh any any number of topics, and to think that that it's a the way in which uh, the body is being um, has become a product is it's it is terrifying. That's what was so yeah. But I think what I, what I was arguing in bodies is that once you have visual culture digitalized and all over the world, and you see something like five to ten thousand digital images a week, mm-hmm. there is a way in which those and many of those images are about the human form and particularly the female form Mm -hmm. there is some way in which that becomes the iconography and that becomes the external representation of what it means to be human Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that becomes the approximation of belonging and existing and so the body play the body is there represented all the time in a way that is really very very novel 
That's interesting. Novel. So, diff- so different in the past, would you say, in the past 30 years than, let's say, from, you know... Well, the acceleration in, since my childhood has just been phenomenal. But yes, okay, in my childhood, we had Hollywood and we did have ads. But let's take the last hundred years, really, um, <laughs> since, since the birth of photography. or, or it, uh, it, it is completely different. If you, if you went to Eastern Europe in the 70s, which I did... What kind of imagery did you see? Well, you saw a communist leader up on a billboard. Right. Right, that was it. Yeah. If you went to homes in working-class England, you saw a picture of the Queen. Mm-hmm. You, I think if you went to Italian homes, you saw the Pope. Right. But you didn't have this continual feeding of, of the, our eyes through the imagery that we now see and don't even realize we're absorbing. Yeah, we're, we're trained. We're really, it's, it's a training. And we're trained to look mm-hmm. and not look. Right? We've got mm-hmm. both. Absolutely. Look at look and not see and look and, and see mm-hmm. only and see certain mm-hmm. things. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very uh, it's it's very um, powerful. Um, mm-hmm. and it happens, you know, over time and we don't even think twice. Certainly, though, speaking to people who are in who are teenagers and in their early 20s and they're uh, conflicts um, with their body, they, they do feel different um, than my generation, which is sort of, I came of age, you know, with the early feminism in the, in the early 80s. I mean, I, those conflicts just, uh, it, it's, it's astonishing to me and really sad and that these um, kids are really sure that if they can change their body and make their body do something that they've, um, that they'll be okay. Change their lives. Yeah, mm, they'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, they'll be okay. So, uh, so maybe the, you know there is. Uh, yeah, they, they know that they're working on um, uh, a body project, and I think that they're working on off of a certain kind of internal uh, internal body for sure. Um, mm. I'm thinking about also you. Um, I have a note here: capitalism and the body, and I have a note: dissatisfaction and um, psychoanalysis and politics and all these ideas were percolating as I was reading and I wondered as, as analysts do we have to um, help the culture get uh, more with the depressive position you know um, <laughs> I mean is that something that uh, you know I mean I consider you well to be I guess so I mean I think I'm not a client in there so I don't like that nomenclature but okay I can go with it all right um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a client in either but I but I I think I think it sums up uh, you know it's something something important you know that I I suppose my responsibility and those of my my friends uh, uh, the WTCI the Women's Therapy Center in Student New York. Um, and a few other psychoanalytic colleagues has been to feel that the insights that we have have something to offer to the wider culture. And it's very important to me that we begin to help people with piercing or understanding the function of grandiose notions or notions of uh, perceptional, transformative um, technologies that actually operate to not allow one to be in the present and to mourn and to know something about limits. I don't want to sound like a Christian theolo- theologian, but there is something 
that is very important that psychoanalysis understands, which is the fantasy of perfection or the fantasy of transformation in the way that you just described with the young women. That if they can get that, it'll it'll be okay, or it'll be all right, is something that we do want to challenge because we want to challenge that all rightness comes from a capacity to absorb, digest, um, manage the multiplicity of emotions, you know, distress and disappointment as well as pleasure and um, happiness and boringness and all of those things. And I think what what's happening in the culture is, and I particularly always feel this when I'm in New York, I'm afraid, is that when I go into a shop and says, somebody says to me, have a really great day, I really want to, I really want to say, well, can't I just have the day I'm having? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't like the imploring of that. Now, okay, why don't I like it? I don't like it because it, it carries the notion that that is the only legitimate day to have. Right. And that is the same thing that happens to a lot of what I would call the rather hollow feelings that a lot of young people walk around with and come in with in therapy, which is everything has to be a damn peak experience. Right. And it's that itself is so supercharged as to be um, useless, really. So I think like when you, this is a long-winded way of saying, I think we do have things to offer back to the culture that may evolve from narcissistic injury, may evolve out of the defense of ordinary pain or extraordinary pain and show that longing and vulnerability and desire and all of those things are part of human condition and they are what make us human. The denial of those or is is what strips us of the capacity to be human. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful, a powerful argument. I was thinking as uh, you were speaking about um, lack or what you know, the mm-hmm. sort of getting people used to castration. It's already happened. You know, it's like you're mm-hmm. never going to have the complete. You're never going to have complete fulfillment. And the fantasy of that, of course, I guess, is you know what we see dangerously um, the marketplace. Um, plays on um, in in all spheres, from the clean house yeah. to the clean body to you know exactly. But. And I think if you've got to the if you want to call it the depressive position, but if you've got the self, <laughs> mm. then you can enjoy the marketplace without it being the thing that becomes the substitute in search. Right. right. That's right. That's right. And you can say no to that. You can think, oh yeah, that new mascara that's really going to be terrific for me. And then two seconds later, you think, wait. That's going to solve my problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why am I? And it, the the I think what's um, what was difficult to um, to digest and to read was the idea that that um, people are willing to accept um, such. It just seems it just seems that all these ad- I don't own a television, right? Because I can't really bear to watch reality TV anymore. I'm like, oh my mm-hmm. god, the, it's so depressing. I'm like, this is it. The focus is back on if I can change me, you'll love me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a desperation, and there's maybe only so much desperation that is uh, unattended to and sort of un. Uh, un-theorized. Un- un- I mean, you know, human mm. desperation uh, is people are hungry to understand their, their desperation. Um, and mm. yet, I think that rather than understanding it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of as we'd say, going into action. Um, to right, and I think that is, that is part of the, the real worry that we would see that 
arises out of a culture, and this is not to blame North America, that says have a great, have a great day because it's the culture that doesn't allow a child to have ordinary distress. Right. From the playground or with their friends or from a grazed knee or from an ordinary digestion of, uh, the pains of childhood. Right. Right. I'm just thinking now, I wonder how it goes in France, because I consider the French to be pretty comfortable with their negativity and that, you know, life is not supposed to be a bowl full of cherries, you know, it's kind of... Yes, they are allowed a more tragic narrative. Yes, they they are, and I was thinking, what's the... What's but the, although nowadays, if you're in, in Paris, they will say, have a uh, bien journée. Wait. I mean, they have, you know, which is new. That is new. That's the last 10 years. Right. And and you've, you're also making the argument in the book that, you know, there's kind of a, a homogenization of beauty standards and body, bodily standards. And it's, uh, it's, really, it's really terrifying to think about it, um, how uh, there's one standard and the attempt to, to reach it um, is being commodified. Well, it's one of these bloody paradoxes because I think at the same moment as we democratize the notion of beauty so that everybody is allowed and invoked into mm-hmm. beauty as opposed to many years ago when there were a few beauties around, right? There were a few beauties in each class. There are a few beauties in Hollywood. Now everybody is meant to make the most of themselves and accept their beauty. But at the same time, so as you've got this widening of the notion of beauty, you've got a narrowing of the ideals of beauty. And not only do you have a narrowing of the ideals in your own local environment, but you have it globally so that we're exporting these extraordinary images that are facing the bodies all over the world. And from my perspective, I would make an analogy that we're losing local bodies in the same way that we're losing local languages, just as as American English becomes predominant in in the world. So the digitalized or digitally enhanced body as shown all over the world is the body that is going to become the aspirational body for people from different cultures. And and in the book, I give a lot of examples of of the lengths that people go to in an ordinary sort of way to transform eyelids to look like Western eyelids, legs to be broken, to be lengthened, noses to be cracked, etc., etc., in order to reproduce uh, a facsimile version of the body that's projected around the world. Mm. That's quite something. Um, I was wondering if you would say something about... Um, you You tend to write, at least my, my knowledge of your writing, is you, you write for um, a popular audience and you weave in psychoanalytic thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's really, uh, I think, very rare. I mean, in America, certainly there's plenty of books coming out, self-help and this and that, but very few that are psychoanalytically um, mm-hmm. informed. And I just wonder if you'd say something about sort of the experience of, of weaving the psychoanalytic into sort of the more uh, popular, if you will, which is, which is what you really do a wonderful job with. Um, Thank you. Well, I think, it, I think part of the difficulty of being a writer is trying to understand. And when you understand something and have that kind of clarity, then you can do it in many different forms. Right. Um, so I know that if I'm writing incomprehensibly, it's because I haven't really understood something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if I'm using a lot of jargon or words that are all jumbly up. So I think my effort has been to be, okay, I want the reasonably educated person to understand this, what my kind of way of looking at things, my field's way of looking at things. Okay, I know I'm subversive within the field, as you pointed out, but what we might have to offer to a wider a wider readership who are interested and i think it's 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 really trying to see, trying to just talk to to people that you might be talking to around your kitchen table if they weren't psychoanalysts right right i don't think it's easy writing i think it's quite hard to do for me anyway but um I'm not really interested in the other kind of writing for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it is, in a way, it is easier to just write to like the in-house crowd, you know, who you can use certain uh, terms and phrases and everybody knows what you're talking about. But to really explain, as you do in the book, uh, what a counter-transference experience can be and can be made mm-hmm. up of, um, I mean, I think it would be terrific if, you know, if everyone understood counter-transference as a factor and transference as a factor in their lives, you know, whether they're on the couch or not. But to begin thinking about the ways in which, of course, we impact, we, we impact each other uh, ineluctably and in ways that are surprising. You describe um, being with a person who seems really put together and cheerful and yet feeling terribly sad. Mm. You know, that, that sort of a... a um, a uh, experience, and I think that we're not we're trained to look at at images and at, at bodies and to begin think, but but to really have that as a as a form of of knowledge to be curious. Why do I? Well, feel I, so- I think this is where psychoanalysis has, has really made a mistake. Yeah. You know, because we have so much to offer as a research method. Absolutely. We have learned so much about people in the process of change. Mm-hmm. We see what makes change difficult. We see how people go forward and then how terrified they get. We know what makes it possible for people to change. That's one kind of thing. We also know how, in the clinical situation, to read something. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that can all be applied. In other, when you're suddenly feeling awful, when you're standing with somebody who seems particularly lovely, what is that? That is something we explore. We could offer that. Yeah, <laughs> we could offer that back to people. Absolutely, because because the identif- I was thinking about the identification of um, people against their own best interests. You know, like mm. hegemony. Really, it's kind of a it's a tro- it's it's troubling. I mean, you know, I'm just on the American scene. You know, we have people identifying with the interests of the the wealthiest um, class mm. who are being given tax breaks. How does that happen? How do people come to identify? Um, yeah, how do internal object relations work, which is what that is, isn't it? I mean, in another way, it's the internal object relations of the of the society yes. that become represented as as the thing that you then come to identify with. Right, as, as standardized. And, and yet we have to be very non-simplistic when we do that stuff. I, mean, I had a column in one of our major newspapers for 10 years, The Guardian. Yes. And what I realized in that, and it wasn't an agony column, and it wasn't a sort of silly psych book, you know, it wasn't a self-help, but I realized you could put a few ideas in each column. Mm-hmm. You can't put too many <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because you need to build a conversation that that hopefully creates a different kind of public conversation. 
Right. Well, what we have to offer can be very overstimulating too. And exactly. I, you know, it's like you don't offer an interpretation if you know if, no, if nobody's nobody's at home to hear it, or it's going to cause them to crack. It's like you have to, you must. Go. Right. But even a simple idea like anger, you know, anger might the person might actually be feeling quite vulnerable or sad or disappointed. Mm-hmm. Even that kind of thing can open up just so much for somebody. That's right. The smallest, the smallest and if it, you know, if we go back to the body, the idea that if you if you say to somebody, "Look, you're always trying to improve it," but it seems to me that all those efforts to improve are about the body there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we help you with that? Is re- is really gets to a much deeper level yes. than is usually discussed. That's right. That's right. It's it's a, like a jaw dropping statement for many people to hear. Like, oh, <laughs> I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, uh, well. Anyway, I I was thinking also about um, uh, in in the book um, one of your more powerful arguments, and it comes back to to psychoanalysis um, that you know, we've had this idea of hysteria and this the hysterical body, et cetera, that that you critique, and I begin. To, but I begin to wonder when I think about uh, psychoanalysis is how how can we what stands in our way of getting these ideas that you put forth uh, very simply and and I think approachably how how can we begin to to sort of break into the public sphere with with some of our very powerful ideas I mean you seem to do it but so few of us do. So few of us sort of enter as psychoanalysts into the public. I mean, you, your, your column in The Guardian, I must say, was the inspiration for my taking on this uh-huh. show of new books in psychoanalysis. I said, I have to do this. Somebody offered it to me. I said, great, I'll definitely do it because getting our ideas out there is so, is so important. But what, you know, I don't know. It's like a how-to guide. How did, how did you do that? How did you, <laughs> how did you find your way? It's, it's, a, it's terrific that, that you did Well, it. I don't know how I found my way except that, you know, I'm in England and London is also the center. <laughs> it's the capital city. It's not, you know, you, I often think the difficulty for, for my New Yorkers with that problem is that Washington and New York are two different places, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And so that you can't, the, the, the attempt to, to, to create public culture is very, very different in America and to link up with political thought and uh, political people and that kind of thing. But I don't know. And also, you're a huge country. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a fairly anti-intellectual tradition in Britain, but nevertheless, uh, it is possible because we still... Well, we still have... Uh, <laughs> many newspapers and we still have radio stations that are listened to by several million people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are not at the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. So I think there are more access points for, you know, I don't know how one, how one would have done it. I find if one stayed in America, I suppose one would just go knocking on doors. <laughs> or, well, you really have to, you really have to figure out your way around, like Dr. Phil. You know, you have to sort mm. of go, you have to do an end run around uh, around that because that that's very uh, very dominant. You know. And yes, I think that is the difficulty is that we have all of that stuff now, and yeah, stuff would not choose to participate in that. Right. 
it is it is difficult. Um, it wouldn't be where I'd want to put my energy. Right. No, it would uh, feel sort of um, like a dead end, I think. But uh, yeah, sadly. Um, yes, yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, is there anything more that you want to tell us or you know speak about that we haven't gotten to um, in in the interview? I mean, there's I have a few more questions, but I wanted to take a moment to see if there's something. No, no, I'm fine. I'm enjoying responding to you, Tracy. <laughs> okay, well that that's good. Um, so I always I always had the idea that you it, it's so funny. Your fat, fat as a feminist issue was so popular in America. I said this, this woman is um, is American, and then uh, to find that so you're you're born in this country or you're born in Britain? Yeah, I'm, I'm confused. I'm born in Britain. I'm born and raised in Britain. Really? Okay. Yeah. And I lived in America for two periods of my life. That's why you have a great uh, American appeal. Somehow you've uh, you've reached maybe. And uh, my mum was a, so that would be put it put that there. I so see. in some sense it was a mother tongue, even though it isn't. Right. Um, and I had very formative years with in North America with at the, the first women's studies program with Louise Eichenbaum and Carol Bloom, who uh, really. Together, we've developed so many ideas and so much practice together. So uh, there's a part of American. I, I guess I'm a mid-Atlantic person at this point. <laughs> well, <laughs> can you can you tell us a little bit about the the founding of the Women's Therapy Center Institute? I, I mean, well, the founding history. institute was really because Louise and I were moving back to New York after having lived in England for five years and having a very successful intervention into British culture, which was the Women's Therapy Center, which provided um, outpatient therapy to women and their families from a feminist perspective, something unheard of, and uh, did training for people who were already therapists and to transform mental health services in Britain and did a lot to to create government thinking about women and mental health. And this is part of and the National came, Health Service then. Yeah. yeah, and then when we came back to America, uh, we realized that there, the thing about America, and particularly New York, is there are so many brilliant, brilliant therapist analysts. So offering a center was kind of ridiculous, but maybe the particular gendered understanding how our conscious and unconscious experiences are shaped and how that what implications that might have for the therapy relationship maybe that was something we had to offer which would be in relation to to short trainings for people who are already in the field so that was the um instigation of the women's therapy center institute but really i'm not a major person there at all because i live in england and and it's been established since 1981, and my friends are had many, many colleagues, some of whom I don't know, who do the do the um, the teaching and conference activities yeah. there. Right. And one of my good friends, Ann Wenderstrand, got me to you. I said, you know, you must know Susie Orbach. She said, you know, she teaches at for with WTCI. She said, oh yeah, let me get you her email address. I said, yeah, I want to write to her and see if I can. If we can do um, an interview, um, but mm-hmm. it's very, um, it's really a, a, a known um, 
uh, sort of a, an important force, I think, in New York, the WTCI. Um, in That's that. great to hear. Oh, yeah, no, definitely, definitely, because, you know, with questions of um, as the body becomes more and more um, problematized um, and, uh, like, we can think of nothing else, the WTCI um, becomes, a, uh, becomes more of a resource, I think, for... Um, I think that's really true. And I think one of the things that we found very interesting was that with the the relational school starting, um, we thought that so many of those issues were the issues that we had been dealing with mm-hmm. within um, gender-conscious feminist therapy. But that somehow, that, uh, so we were very identified with and very, very thrilled with that whole practice that, that arose around Mitchell uh, in, in, um, in New York. And that really, it was very interesting. To, the initial phases of the relational uh, turn within psychoanalysis, kind of gender was dropped out, even though most of the things were, were, had come out of a reconsideration of gender. So, how do, how I mean, do you it, understand that, that that happened? I, I see exactly what you mean, but, but why, why, why? Well, did, I suppose that some of the people who were theorists at the time, uh, the beginning theorists, like Aaron and Mitchell, in a way, were thinking that if they're practice, they, they wanted their own subjectivity on the line, which I think was not just a consequence of the politics of the New Left in 68, but it was a consequence of the politics of, of the women's liberation movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are going to be represented as the maternal figure in the transference, if you like, old-fashionedly, mm-hmm. then you wanted to recognize the subjectivity of that, um, of that mother and that analyst. I mean, I think that was our contribution from England. Mm-hmm. That the mo- well, also that the mother has a subjectivity. Subjectivity of her own, which she is still struggling with. Right. right. And so I, I think in a kind of unconscious or maybe a sleight of hand, it's not a... It, the, the, the guys who came in wanted that subjectivity to be on the table, and that's what allowed them to think in those terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it had to be, in a way, uh, defeminized? Degenderized. Degenderized. Right. Well, we all have subjectivity, so, right, um, which, is, which is true. Um, but, the, but really the, the foundational idea that the mother has a subjectivity um, yeah. cha- changed the terms of what, what mothering means and, what, what a baby, yeah. and what, how we think of what a baby needs. Um, yeah. You know, a, a subjective um, experience. A mother with a subjectivity is, is crucial for Exactly. That. You know, that. she's not only the baby's object, right? And I right. think you know that those were our criticisms of Winnicott because we thought he's absolutely wonderful in terms of what he observes. But right. excuse me, the mother is also a subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. so you know, Louise, in my first book, which was a very long time ago too, is really all about that. Which which book is that? The, the first one. You well, I think it's probably called Understanding Women. Oh yeah. But it's out of print in the states. Um, right. And. Uh, well, maybe we'll kindleize it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Understanding women, a feminist psychoanalytic approach, right? Um, I have that on my shelf. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I must have gotten a copy somehow. Over well, I'm, I'm sure in today's terms it would be we, it, there are criticisms to make of it, but I still think the things that we understood there were, were full. Yeah, we're crucial, crucial, and, fa- yeah. and and I think set a new set a new foundation um, mm-hmm. for psychoanalytic thinking. Listen, Art, we're we're going over our fifty minute hour. I know, I know. I, it's a, 
I have a, I guess it's, it, I have to study my kind of transference. I'm not ready to, to let you go, but, um, but I have to. Um, and, uh, I'd like to thank you on behalf of New Books and Psychoanalysis for, um, for being with us and talking to us, um, about, um, your thinking and, uh, and your work overall. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chase. I've really enjoyed it. Okay. All right. Bye bye.